The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. We're in week two of a a three-week mini-series this Lent, focusing on our dependence on God. As creatures, uh, as dust from dust, and to dust we shall return, we belong to God. And especially as people marked as Christ's own forever, we can be God's special people who live with the grain of reality, living according to the reality of our being dependent on God. I actually want to start this morning by thinking with you about the collect of the day, which you can find in your bulletin. I think that helpfully encapsulates some of the implications of our being God's people that our readings this morning then serve to to unpack. If there's any doubt of the Anglican indebtedness to the great St. Augustine of Hippo, a moment's glance at our collect of this week should put those doubts to rest. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's a direct quotation from the famous opening lines of Augustine's book one in his Confessions. And even the latter clauses trade in Augustine's emphasis on our desires and affections as being central to the motivational structure that leads us to ultimately either outward and and upward unity with God or to curve in on ourselves. If I might, I think there are something of three conceptual uh, movements in this collect that I think serve to highlight our status as God's people. And these moments are conveniently ordered to the past, the present, and the future. So the collect begins with noting our past. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself. Our origin in God and, and from God forms the basis for the Christian conception of all of reality, let, let alone our conception of ourselves. We belong to God, first, because he made us. The third moment at the end, the goal or the telos of our existence, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus. Christ, as God, is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Yet, as one of us as well, Christ is the archetype human, the pattern, the image, and the goal of human existence to lead maximally flourishing lives with the grain of reality, all that we are needs to be aligned with this goal, this telos of Christ-likeness. And by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ, who dwells in us, we ever progress towards that goal. Which leads us to consider the second conceptual moment in the middle, the the not yet of the already but not yet that characterizes our, our present sojourn. Yes, we belong to God. Yes, we are marked as Christ's own forever, but we still await the end, and thus we live now in the meantime. It's in this present moment that we find ourselves with restless hearts and disordered affections. I think many Anglicans have inherited from St. Augustine this emphasis on our affections, our desires, those things that we want, And rather than seeing desire in a negative light, Augustine and others in the Augustinian tradition paint desires in a positive light. They're they're foundational to how we think of ourselves. I think this is especially helpful because we sometimes, or I sometimes at least, think that the Christian path of sanctification is sort of littered with abandoned desires. 
we think that holiness entails a constant stop wanting that, don't want that, stop having any desire at all, as if some kind of like stoicism was identical with the teachings of Jesus. But rather, on the Augustinian view, sin in the fall didn't all of a sudden give us new desires for the bad, but rather sin distorts or disorders our desire for God. We always only ever want the good. We just often go about attempting to satisfy that desire in the wrong way, or we get confused about what the good actually is, and so our desires are left unsatisfied because of this misdirection or disordering. To put it in St. Paul's terminology from Romans 1, which we read this morning, we trade the truth for a lie. But I think importantly, it's still the truth, along with the good and the beautiful, that we desire. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. What we desire ultimately and foundationally is God. Because we've been made by God, for God. We belong to God. And we'll never be satisfied until we receive this fundamental framework for reality and apply it to our lives, the totality of our lives, including and especially our desires. And so our readings this morning highlight both, I think, the manner in which our desires form the basis for our motivational structure and the manner in which we belong to God. And so only God can ultimately satisfy our desires. In Exodus 17, our Old Testament reading, we, we have this vignette of the people of Israel um, wherein their desire for even basic, basic physical sustenance is satisfied only by God. You might recall the context of Exodus 17, and for those of you reading the lectionary office here for the two-year cycle, we actually have a happy coincidence where our daily office readings intersect with our Sunday lectionary. Uh, Exodus 17 comes on the heels of the Israelites' uh, sudden and dramatic exodus from, from slavery in Egypt, and previously, way back in Exodus chapter 6, we read of a, of a clear communication by God to Israel that God was going to be their God and Israel was going to be God's people. God says to Moses back in chapter 6, he says, Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The, the people of Israel will be God's special people, and he will care for them by liberating them from slavery in Egypt. Which God, of course, did. And then he, he freed the people. He took them through the, the parted waters of the Red Sea. He led them into the wilderness and even provided food for them in, in the manna and the quail. And then we come to chapter 17 today. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, saying, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? In my mind, the Israelites raise here a legitimate desire. As they'd queried before, is it better to live as slaves in Egypt or die of thirst in the wilderness? And I, I think their tacit response is that they desire life over death. I don't think I can disagree. But on a deeper level, I think the Israelites are raising more existential questions, like what does it mean 
what does it really mean to belong to God? What does it really mean that God will be our God and we'll be his people? Do we really want to follow this God? Does belonging to God mean that we follow him no matter what, even to death? Well, I think that we who know the example of Christ on the cross and the martyrs of the church know the answer to this question must actually be in the affirmative. But not for the Israelites here at this moment. Yes, they are God's people. They wholly belong to God. But he did not require their lives from them at this moment. And instead, he provided a satisfaction for their desire for basic sustenance and quenched their thirst from an unexpected place, water flowing from a rock in the desert. The scene from our gospel, which we heard from John 4, I think clearly picks up this theme of an unexpected provision of water. We move from the water that flows from the rock to the promise of living water that Christ offers to this unnamed Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. I think here Jesus is a a master pedagogue, and in almost sort of Socratic fashion, Jesus offers a bit of a tutorial to this woman, moving her from her desire for water, or maybe just the desire not to have to go back to the well all the time, all the way to showing at the end that he himself is the end, the ultimate satisfaction of all her desires. Jesus helps her to see that it isn't just physical water that she craves. Physical thirst will come again. Rather, it's eternal life that she seeks, and, and we all with her. We don't know much about the woman's, uh, the one at the well's relational history. Uh, the comments that Jesus offers are, are rather cryptic. And Jesus says that she has five husbands, or had five husbands, and the one she with right now isn't her husband. But I think what we can discern in these comments about the woman is that she has a quest for the satisfaction of a, a desire for connection with another, a, a desire for union, a desire that ultimately only God can satisfy. The six unions with six men are inevitably unsatisfying, for it wasn't another man she was looking for, it was for God for whom she ultimately thirsted. And Jesus here, good teacher as he is, picks up on her desire to worship God, but also her confusion about how to best go about doing that. Jesus is doing here a bit of theology proper, as theologians call it. He's discerned that this woman has some skewed ideas about God, and he's attempting to give her a little theology lesson. But where the lesson lands, however, is a bit unexpected. It lands with Jesus' lesson about God ending up being a lesson about himself. To satisfy her desire to worship and to satisfy this woman's desire for connection, she needed the true God and the true man, God incarnate himself, the one with whom she was speaking. This then, I think, finally takes us to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1, where Paul's talking about all manner of ways that people live the opposite of flourishing lives. He's describing situations where people have turned away from what they know to be true, turned away from the one true God, and have therefore abandoned their status as gods and have as such gone against the grain of reality. These are, these are warning passages for the Romans and, and for us who might contemplate wavering and ordering our desires to God and instead direct our desires to ourselves. To put it in the language of the colic, this is what disordered affections look like. For instance, think about Paul's comments in, about idolatry in, in verses 23 and 25 of Romans 1. 
as with the woman at the well, the desire to worship is, is right and it's good and, and that's pure. Anyone, when anyone worships, they are tapping into that fundamental truth that we humans are not the originators of ourselves. Um, there's something out there that has made us and is worthy of our devotion. However, as Paul argues, we go awry, we're disordered when we worship anything other than the immortal God. Literal idolatry shows this clearly. As Paul says, instead of worshiping the ever-glorious God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, birds, animals, and reptiles. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Literal idolatry is not about abandoned desires. It's about acting on a right desire, but in sin and ignorance, pursuing satisfaction of that desire in a wrong way. And the same dynamic, I think, explains some of the items on the list of characteristics that occur when, when God gives one over to oneself, as verses 23 and 30 uh, indicate. When one is filled with deceit or gossips or slanders, then one does not have affections that are ordered to truth. When one is filled with unrighteousness and evil, one's not ordered to the good. When one is foolish, faithless, heartless, or ruthless, one is disordered relative to the beautiful. When one has their affections ordered to oneself and becomes insolent, haughty, boastful, then one does not live with the grain of reality that says God has made us for himself, not we ourselves for ourselves. And then it's in this context that St. Paul offers his comments on homosexual acts in verses 26 and 27. And I admit, I struggled with whether to bring this up this week. I'm not terribly fond of controversy, and it's a whole lot easier to weigh in on controversial issues of the 16th century as opposed to the 21st. So part of me wanted to say, nothing to see here and move on, but I felt like I'd be skirting my responsibility to you if I did. And moreover, these verses do fit within the framework that I'm sketching regarding our dependence on God. And these verses aren't outliers in this chapter. They are all of one piece in describing the universal human condition in which we find ourselves with disordered affections that lead us to twist our desires or pursue our desires in ways that are not along the grain of reality. For Paul here, the homosexual acts described in verses 26 and 27 are illustrative of good affections satisfied in disordered ways. Now here I'm using the word disordered as the colic does. Desires that are rightly ordered are ordered to God, with God as the ultimate satisfaction of desire. Affections are disordered any time and every time we act with some end besides God in sight. And this is contrary to the grain of reality. Like the woman at the well, the erotic desire explored in sexual intimacy is a desire to unite with another outside of oneself. That's what erotic means. It's, it's of eros, the love that is unifying. So sex is about union. It's about connection. But far beyond desire for physical gratification, sexual desire is but a mere shadow of a far more intense, far more foundational, far more essential desire to unite with our creator who has made us for himself. Sex isn't really about you, or it's not really about your partner. Sex is about your union with God. The deep desires that underlie our sexual desires can and are ultimately satisfied only 
by God. And one never even needs experience this physically in order for that desire to be satisfied ultimately. I think this is in part why the church has long celebrated celibacy and chastity and singleness, although we Protestants have kind of done a lousy job of celebrating celibacy. Chastity and singleness is poignantly illustrative of the fact that we are all dependent on God alone to satisfy our desires. As St. Paul himself shows, as our Lord himself shows, as the many monastic mystics show, one can achieve the ultimate satisfaction of one's desires, even one's erotic desires, without ever having to engage in physical gratification. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Our eros, even, is restless until it rests in God, where it can be a properly ordered affection. As creatures, we belong to God. God made us for himself. Moreover, as Christians, we are marked as Christ's own forever, God's special people by grace through faith. This means that we are wholly dependent upon God. We are dependent on God for the very sustenance of our life, and God came through for the Israelites to quench their thirst, and he can come through for us. But even deeper, in our sin and ignorance, we have wandering hearts and disordered desires, For we are dependent on union with God to find the only full and true satisfaction for our first and last desires, brought to us most deeply and personally in Jesus Christ. So please hear our collect once more. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Look with compassion on the heartfelt desires of your servants, and purify our disordered affections, that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.